I'm hoping guys my age accept younger kinksters more and and realize that it doesn't negate their experience at all and it doesn't negate their identity at all. It's just everything gets co-opted and everything gets morphed and everything gets changed because that's the way life goes and that and that's the same for leather. Hey everyone, this is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore, and welcome to Stud Stories. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in SF. Through stories about the stud, we will talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We're going to talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started the podcast when the COVID pandemic struck, and we had to isolate here in SF. The podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I'd say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers. So, today we are talking about leather... Why? Because it is Folsom Street Fair month, and there is no IRL Folsom Street Fair this year. So we wanted to give you a little kink in your ear holes today. We are talking to Race Bannon, who is... Race Bannon's resume is just so goddamn long. I'm not going to take take time right now to, uh, to tell you about it, because he's going to in just a minute. We hope that you enjoy the pod. If you enjoy it, if you medium enjoy it, or even if you like just kind of like enjoy it, it would be great if you rated us on iTunes. Rate us and write a review. Why? Because it makes us more to the top of the algorithm and more people will find us. If you like queer history, rate us and write a review. Rate us and write a review. What do I want you to do? Rate us and write a review. And if you haven't joined our Patreon yet, you certainly should. I'll tell you more about that at the end. Goodbye and hello. Hey everyone, it's Tara Haywood, one of the co-owners of The Stud and editor and producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I just wanted to drop a quick note and say that in today's episode, you hear some background noise that we discovered is in fact Race Bannon's leather pants shifting. So that's a little bonus content for you for this fulsome edition and in fact a very authentic and in-character version of Race. So just letting you know, enjoy, and thanks again. Hi everyone, this is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivi, and we are here with this month's guest. Because it is Folsom Street Fair Month, we have asked a leather type of person to be with us, and that is Race Bannon. Hi, Race. Hi there, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to have you. I've heard so much about you through the grapevine for years, but we've never met. Imagine no one out there who listens to our podcast knows you at all and give them a little context for what you what you are in the world. Sure. Um, so it's Race Bannon, and um, that is really the name I go by. People ask sometimes, is that really your name? That That's my name. Uh, I've been active in the leather scene since I was 17. I was sneaking into leather bars in Chicago underage. I was able to grow facial hair at a very young age, and uh, they didn't have the kinds of um, checks and balances at the front doors that they want that they have today. And so I've been going to, you know, men's leather bars uh, since I was seventeen. So we're talking, you know, nineteen seventy-two, um, and. I was sneaking up from college. I was going to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, about 100 miles south of Chicago. Every weekend, sneaking into the bars. Uh, long story short, I dropped out third semester to become a professional dancer. And that, that's a whole nother story. And uh, was bartending uh, part-time to while I was taking class. And I ended up working in leather bars. I lived in kind of the what I call the underbelly of the leather world of the 70s in Chicago and was very active, very much a lone wolf. I never affiliated with clubs, organizations, projects, efforts, things like that. Particularly, I did do a lot of uh, what we called then gay liberation work. <laughs> um, you know, that's what we called it then. And it really wasn't until uh, I moved to uh, New York for a couple of years to pursue a dance career. and very involved in the leather scene there. And then it was in 1980 when 
I moved to Los Angeles and through kind of a weird stroke of luck or happenstance, somebody saw me playing at a party, said, would you be interested in teaching us that? And I went, okay. <laughs> and so I ended up teaching. That kicked off sort of a long career of teaching, speaking, writing, uh, educating. I've sat on a gazillion boards of directors of various organizations. Uh, I write a great deal, as, as, as you know. I, um, I consider myself extremely active in the leather community, even at 66 years of age. I, I try to stay both active and relevant and not the old guy on his lawn saying, get off. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot more to my life, but I'll start with that. You said that you called it like the underbelly of Chicago leather. What do you mean by that? So the scene in the 70s was was kind of an underground scene. The, the leather bars were typically in places that weren't high trafficked. They were often in industrial areas and places like that. There were, were a lot of sex clubs and bathhouses dedicated specifically to um, the leather scene, or at least tangentially so. There was a lot of leather activity, but it wasn't highly public. It really wasn't until, uh, you know, in all honesty, it wasn't until the 80s, maybe even the 90s, that, that leather uh, and kink, as I tend to call it today um, more often, became a lot more high profile and in the public eye. So that's why I call it the underbelly. You know, I, I would strip off the day, the, although I lived pretty much as a leather man from the time I was 19 on pretty openly and I, et cetera. But, you know, you strip off the day stuff, you go into the nighttime and I was that lone wolf, you know, cruising for the next guy and hanging out with the guys and playing a lot. <laughs> That's why I call it the underbelly. Um, also, you said that when you were in LA, you were in public, like playing with someone and then people asked you to teach them what you were doing. What were you doing? So, well, I was at a play party hosted by Avatar Club Los Angeles, which is still in existence. In fact, I'm speaking to them later this month. And I, I had just moved to Los Angeles and I met a guy at their party and I had tied him up, I was flogging him, I was doing some unique things with um, clothespins, and I was, uh, I had created a, a rope harness around his head, so it was kind of like a hood with rope. And a whole other, I, would, I don't remember everything that I was doing, because I was doing it. <laughs> but I remember turning around and there were 20 guys watching. And when I was done and sort of refocused outside of just my play, because I'm a very focused player, I'm really into the person I'm playing with, somebody from the club walked up and said, would you teach us how you did that? And I said, okay. And I think it was the next month or two, um, they booked me as for their monthly education session. And I don't even remember what I taught first, in all honesty. I ended up teaching for them a lot. I became a member. But uh, that really was the beginning of my public life of leather. Mm. I was really, prior to that, just the leather guy that hung out with the guys and played a lot. Got it. Cool. And when I say hung out with the guys, there were always women in the scene, peripherally. Um, but the truth is, I, I hung out in a very, you know, gay men's world. Uh, but even it really wasn't until probably the 90s, in my in my opinion, that the genders and the orientations and the styles and the kinks began to blend mm. and the, the, the worlds kind of came together in a mm. way that pri prior to that, they were mostly separate. Got it. Um, I'm curious about like when I'm sure this is a question you would get a lot, but like what is. The early, like, what drew you to leather as a young person? Because you said you started going to bars when you were 17. And so, like, what was it about leather and kink that, that, like, what was signaling through the smoke to you about, like, this is where I want to go? Okay, so, <laughs> um, I've been tying other boys up since I was seven years old. I had a neighbor uh, down the street who would come over every week when I was nine years old. Um, he was eight. And I would 
pull his pants down and spank him and send him on his way. I was always the one who played, um, and this is not correct in, 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 in modern terms, but Cowboys and Indians, that was just what kids played back then. I, I wouldn't promote that today. But, <laughs> but uh, and so I was always the kid that tied the kid up to the tree or whatever. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I really liked it. Hmm. And I was highly sexual with my own age, for the most part, um, uh, at a very young age. And it always had a kink bent to it somehow, usually around some sort of power, usually with me in control. <laughs> uh, me coming out as a switch was a much later thing in life. But um, so I always gravitated to, to sex on the kinky end of the spectrum. It, it's not something new. So when I stumbled upon the first leather bar, and that's what I did, stumble upon it, I walked in and it was Nirvana. I was home. There was no question. I, I, these are my people. This is immediately what I thought. So, um, so yeah, that's, I've always kind of had a kinky bent to my sex. Cool. Um, I want to go through some like history with you about my super, uh, uh, lightweight understanding of the history of leather in San Francisco. Um, uh, it's pretty general. So I would love to like, not the fact check with you, but I want your opinion on some of these, these things that I've, I've found in my research. Sure. So, according to my research, male leather, male leather culture began in the 1940s and most likely grew out of post-World War II biker culture. That is um, quite likely accurate. I think if you look at the people who seriously study leather history, they would agree with you. That, yeah. that the, aesthetic, the, the military aesthetic mm -hmm. um, absolutely spawned part of the look along with bikers and it mm -hmm. kind of merged into this thing we call leather, yeah. I wonder if it, like, I, like I'm, well, the next thing I have is something I wanna ask about. It's been posited that leather was attractive as a more masculine alternative to high culture, pop culture, faggotry, and camp style. I think that was correct, both overtly and unconsciously, and depending upon the, the guy. I think there were certainly men that chose leather consciously because it was a counterpoint to the more effeminate side of of gaydom at the time right and then there were simply men who were attracted to it because it got him in the crotch and they didn't certainly didn't consciously think oh this is i'm doing this because i don't like that and the truth is some of my best friends in leather were drag queens even in the 70s. This, is not, this was not new. Um, in fact, in Chicago, I went to this bar, my, my home bar really, called the Gold Coast. It's a famous leather bar. And across the street was the Baton, a very famous drag bar. And Jim, the guy who owned the Baton, was a leather man. <laughs> in fact, he ended up opening his own leather bar around the corner from the Baton at one point. So, um, yeah, the, so I think, Many Leathermen were quite comfortable with that other side of personality. Uh, but yeah, I think you're correct that some people probably chose it as a counterpoint to the more effeminate side of Gaydom. Yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because for me, it brings up like questions around like, uh, like an attraction to like, a, like class, class identities as well as um, like what is masculinity? Like what is what is working class masculinity versus like academic masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talk about someone who likes musicals and is like, yeah. uh, doesn't have any calluses on their hands. That could be an academic heterosexual man or it could be like um, your run of the mill faggot back in the day. Yeah. Um, and I use the word that, I use the word faggot. I hope that that's okay with you. Oh, it's totally okay. I, okay. I, I get the context. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a faggot, as a faggot identified faggot. So like it's, it's in when, like I live in San Francisco, I've lived here for 10 years. And for me, I like, I just, I like accept leather and leather culture just like so easily now. I, I, I like volunteered the first time I lived here. First year I lived here, I was a volunteer at the Folsom Street Fair. Cause I was like, oh, well, meet some people. And then um, I just am so used to it. And now, you know, as time goes by and there's the ubiquity of the bulldog harness for uh, queer men in, in all over the place um, or like leather uh, harnesses as fashion accessory or however, as how it's entered the pop, the pop cultural 
semiotics. Um, but it, it's reading the history of it and hearing that it comes from like biker culture and all of this, it, it does strike me as being like pretty classed, like of a middle class or a, a lower class type of person who's not, who's working, who's, who, and also like socially outside, like biker gangs to me, even just the word biker gang, I'm like, oh, you mean <laughs> roving gangs of <laughs> like criminal men who ride mm-hmm. bikes, right? Yeah, um, it's true. I, uh, as a side note, it's interesting. I, I didn't even know I was doing it, but when I was, um, 15, 16, I was hanging out with Hell's Angels in the park. Oh, wow. And did not know that I was hanging out with Hell's Angels. They were just bikers. Yeah. And I think they knew I was a little fag, and they kind of protected me. They actually befriended me. Um, I would see them every, like, I don't know, once a month in the park. And they were really nice to me, and I didn't know what they were doing when I, when I wasn't around, but they were quite nice to me. And I have a feeling that that imprinted on me. Yeah. Because yeah. they, I was a only child, loner, pretty to myself, extremely shy, uh, all the way up, th- up till I got into high school. And, and all of a sudden people were nice to me. So I think that um, leather culture indeed does come from kind of a blue collar aesthetic. Mm. A lot of the men that I knew certainly dressed in a blue collar way. And there was an assumption that in the early days, everybody was dripping in leather and that actually wasn't true. They, there was a reason they used to call them leather leather Levi bars. They mm. didn't call them le- leather bars in the beginning. They were leather Levi bars. Mm. And that's because most of the guys were in jeans and white t-shirts and um, maybe a Levi jacket. And a few guys were in leather and a few guys just had a leather jacket. And, and some were in some kind of uniformy thing. But I can't say uniform fetish was a, a huge thing, at least not in earlier incarnations that I saw. But yeah, I think it was definitely a blue collar aesthetic. With that said, the people who actually lived in that world deep came from all walks. Right. From every socioeconomic class. Um, Even early on, I I mixed with, you know, many men of color and and people who were... um, of different faiths, of different backgrounds, ethnicities, et cetera. It was absolutely a very white culture. Don't get me wrong. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. But um, then those same guys that would adopt that blue collar aesthetic and way of being and the the butchness were often executives or CEOs or, or whatever. And you would walk into a San Francisco leather bar. I remember very distinctly visiting here. And probably the second or third line out of someone's mouth was discussing something like opera. So it had a blue collar aesthetic, but I don't. I it, but the people themselves came from all walks. It reminds me of a, a like a, a quip or a phrase I've heard, and I think it maybe is a homophobic one, but it's like when he opened his mouth, his purse the purse fell out. Oh yeah, and that happened often. And honestly, with the exception of a few guys with sticks up their ass i don't think anybody gave a fuck is that okay if i say fuck please (laughs) um i i tend to swear a lot um for the most part the people i was around did not care Mm. they if you were a good person and you kind of respected the leather for lack of a better way of putting it that you know we were trying to create an environment and whatever and you but no i mean nobody cared really uh, again, there was always a few guys with a stick up their ass, but for the most part, nobody gave a damn. I love that story. Yeah. Um, I have a little bit, you actually already touched on my next thing, which was the first leather bar in the United States was the Gold Coast, which opened in 1958. Is that true? That was the first? Do you, Have you heard anything different? It could be. It certainly was one of the first. Okay. Um, I actually ended up working there at one point. <laughs> um, but I will not commit to saying it was the first (laughs) (laughs) because I don't know for sure. Right. Uh, It certainly was among the first. Absolutely. Cool. Um, We have, of course, Folsom Street in San Francisco. Um, The Toolbox opened in San Francisco in 1961 at 339 4th Street and closed in 71. And it was famous. There was a mural there by Chuck Arnott that was pretty famous. And it was made especially famous because in June 1964, Paul Welch uh, wrote an article about it in Life magazine called Homosexuality in America. And in that article, 
San Francisco is described as the gay capital of America. And this article is actually, in a bunch of my research, given a lot of weight with attracting more gay people to San Francisco. I mean, you must know about that mural and that article. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, um, yeah the, that, that's probably the most famous leather-oriented mural in the world, in large part because of that, that magazine article. It exposed, it pro- maybe perhaps the first time that publicly, leather life at all. Mm. And so I think that's why that particular mural and that particular article are so iconic in our history in terms of a timeline, Mm. because all of a sudden the world kind of knew of this gay leather culture in San Francisco that prior to that, it kind of operated under the radar for the most part. I mean, certainly here in San Francisco, everyone knew about it for the most part, but it wasn't really that well-known a thing because most of the bars were, were frequented only by leather folk at the time and and there really wasn't a lot of mixing of the public and leather at that time. Mm. It's it's interesting. it was written in 1964 which just strikes me as knowing that Stonewall was in 69 and the and the Compton's cafeteria riots were here in 66 and there were other ones in LA in 66 and 67 as such an early time to have a cover story be about not just the gay world but like a subset within the gay world. That's in a national magazine. And I'm curious, like, I mean, I'm, I I can't imagine being part of that scene and suddenly, like, being either part of that scene at Toolbox and then getting this article written and being, like, maybe feeling like a... Like, you know what I mean? When when underground goes above ground, there's, like, yep. several <laughs> things that happen. You can feel like a sellout. You could feel like a... And I wonder what that was like here. And then I wonder what it was like to be, like, living in Indiana and see this as, like, a, a kid. You know, it's such a, a wild moment. So I was 10 years old when it came out. I was born in yeah. 1954. Okay. And so I did not even know of that article until I was, I think, 13 and somebody had a copy. And I am opening this and reading every word like it's the (laughs) kinky Bible. You know, I was just so enthralled because I, you know, so. um, And I think from conversations with people who were around much you know older than I who were around mm. at that time and inside leather bars and part of leather culture it was a mixed bag reaction part of it was damn our world has just gotten exposed that's going to ruin it because part of the allure of leather culture especially then was its underground nature yeah and then there were people who were like oh that's great they see us as whatever although the article was a little mixed bag it wasn't always a very positive article um so I, 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 I think people had a very mixed reaction to that article. That makes sense. It, having been part of like certain underground scenes or micro scenes and seeing them blow up and what happens, it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing. But also like being humanized is also a lovely experience, right? Yeah. Um, moving on, 1966 on Folsom Street, The Stud, which is why we're here, opened as, long, as well as Phoebe's. And uh, these are sometimes referred to as kind of the anchors of Folsom Street at that time. Allegedly, this is something I didn't triple check. Allegedly, the stud was originally a Hell's Angel hangout, which I haven't really heard before because it really quickly became a bar for like hippies. Um, and and it actually had a psychedelic blacklight mural by Chuck Arnett, yep. who painted the mural that was at um, Toolbox. My, my understanding, and again, this is my amateur historian, yeah. <laughs> um, but there was an attempt to make the stud kind of a leather bar like other leather bars and it didn't really work and it quickly became more of a bar for um hippies of which there were many south of market at the time actually um the hate you know the old, they had had a lot of sort of kinky hippies and there were um certainly a lot of of, of them south of market and uh so yeah that is that that sinks with with my understanding of the history of the stud that had an early incarnation. That's why Chuck Arnett was probably right painting that. Absolutely a leather man identified as part of the core leather culture. And here he is. So probably hope this is going to be a leather bar. Right. I'm kind of happy it became what it became, frankly. (laughs) I mean, same. It's, (laughs) it's, it's interesting when we moved in, when the collective moved in, the, it took me forever to realize that the stud was painted in black and blue and red accents, which I just never really noticed before. Mm-hmm. And then there was conversations around the historical leather district, uh, the cultural leather district. And, and I realized that the stud was painted in this way because 
As a longtime patron of the stud, I'd never seen it as a leather bar particularly, mm -hmm. especially being around the corner from the Eagle and Powerhouse and Hole in the Wall. Um, it's interesting when you, uh, you talk about those colors. Um, Tony de Blas, who created the leather pride flag, was one of my best friends. Oh, really? And Yeah. And um, I think if he was still alive and was seeing that the colors he chose and the patterns he chose, everything, because he just created that unilaterally. That was not a committee decision. He announced it at International Mr. Leather on stage, said, if, here's my flag I created. If you like it, if you don't, great, whatever. And it became the flag. Wow. That, that's the sum total of how it got introduced. And I think he would be honored in, to know that his legacy lives on in colors and patterns and the way we morph the leather pride flag into different things. Yeah. including painting bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had actually researched that, that there was some, a little bit of up, upheaval around him not having consulted the community or something like this. Yeah. Um, he, Tony de Blas was a very smart man. He had a PhD. He was the world's foremost authority in bats at the time. Oh, he actually yes. lived in the caves of Iran for three months with bats. So he, he and when I first met him, he was working at the um, Chicago... Museum of History. It's, oh, I, I'm saying the wrong name of the museum, but the museum in Chicago. And um, he was very involved in a very early phase with a lots of groups and boards. He helped found the, the Leather Archives and Museum. And he really kind of outed the, uh, the, the teaching of BDSM openly. It had been done before, but he really upped it another notch. He also was the, one of the very first people to blend genders and orientations in events. It was actually Tony who was one of the spearheading people around around that. And um, he had been on enough boards, uh, maybe you can relate, to know that decision by committee is not always easy. And he didn't want to go through that. And that's why he presented it. And that's why he was honest. He said, if you like it, great. If you don't throw it away, I won't be offended. But I'm doing this because I'm doing it. And often history is made by those that, those that do it. <laughs> and there was a little bit of kerfuffle that he hadn't consulted the community. But for the most part, people looked at it and said, oh, I like it. Yeah. Um, some, I remember some guys told me in my own circle, oh, the heart's a little mushy. <laughs> you know, the, the guys that were like, well, we're, we're about, you know, tying each other up and doing all these things and shoving fists up our butt and stuff like that. So... The heart kind of to them was, I loved it because that's what t Tony and I always agreed. BDSM, kink, fetish was always ultimately about making love. And so that, that the heart, by the way, the, the, the flag itself has never been publicly declared by Tony to mean anything. Really? Nothing. No. He was very clear that I will not define what any part of that flag means. Oh. So when people say this is what it means... Tony was very clear. I, it is what you want it to mean. Wow. He, he never declared what it meant, what it meant ever. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. so, I've heard, because I've heard people say the blue is this, the black is this. Yep. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not true. It's whatever, you know, Tony would just nod his head and go, okay. You know, but he would never say, yes, that's what it is. That's what I meant. Never. Not to Got my it. knowledge. I, and I knew him pretty well. Cool. Um, Okay, back to this timeline. Um, I have Cynthia Slater fought for acceptance within the gay leather scene in San Francisco during the 70s. Yeah, amazing human being. She persuaded the management of San Francisco's SM Leather Club, the Catacombs, the most, face, most famous fisting club in the world, to open up to lesbians. And it was originally gay men's, on, gay men's club only, and it operated from 75 to 81, then closed and reopened 82 to 84. So that's... To me, like such a win, such a, a win for women, and such a like, an, like such a very direct, like to take a men's space and integrate it that way, is such a profound moment. Um, and I was wondering your take on that. I found it interesting. I was only visiting, not, you know, I mean, so that was actually I wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been when I was visiting yet. I was visiting later, but I knew of the people. I knew Cynthia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, wonderful human being, passed away far too early. Um, 
And what happened was not, there wasn't a lot of pushback. That's what was interesting is that with some exception, there was not a lot of pushback by the guys that the lesbians were coming in and going to fist. They just wasn't. And in fact, a couple of the women became truly regulars and nobody cared because they said, as long as you like seeing male butthole <laughs> and it doesn't bother you, knock yourself out. There's always going to be somebody who, who pushes back, but I, the stories I was told was that the pushback wasn't very great. And so um, I don't think, and there are women who would probably correct me, I don't know of a case before that where, where the women intentionally went into a men's space and say, can, can you carve out something for us? And may, that might have been the first. Cynthia was absolutely a trailblazer. I wouldn't be surprised if that was indeed um, um, uh, the first time that somebody had done that. But yeah, it wasn't that big a deal to some people. It was historically a big deal, though. Right. I'm curious, like, did it lead to men and women playing with each other? Or was, were people still playing uh, separated along these gender lines, do you think? They were mostly playing along the gender lines, yeah. Um, the, I, I know of one case years ago where this one particular woman had these very small hands that a lot of men liked. <laughs> and, um, and she would fist a lot of guys, and they were, they were good with it. Uh, but for the most part, they played along gender lines. More about Slater is that she hosted Society of Janus. Am I saying that right? Society Janus. Of Janus. Janus. Safety demonstrations during the late 70s, mm -hmm. which was like helped her to cultivate a space for women within male-dominated leather scene. Yep. And they're still around. Oh, really? Yep. On I have on June 13th, 1978, Gail Rubin and others, 16 others founded, I'm going to have to ask for help on this, Samoa. 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 A lesbian feminist BDSM organization in San Francisco that existed from 78 to 83. And it was the first lesbian BDSM group in the United States. That's correct. And a very a book that I referenced early in my kink career came out of that, which was the lesbian um, um, SF safety. I'm, I'm, I think it's lesbian SM safety manual. I may be saying the title wrong, mm. but that was one of my first references because nobody had written books about this stuff. So I was referencing a lesbian book early on before I was referencing a lot of other things. There wasn't much written back then. We didn't have even anything in, in terms of articles or books or anything like that about doing kinky sex at all. It was all guerrilla learn in the trenches knowledge. And that's how it was done. We, nothing was written down. And so when people began to write books and articles and things about kink and how to do it, um, it was kind of profound. It, was, it, was, it changed the scene significantly. And a lot of the women wrote early on, including that, what I believe is called the Lesbian SM Safety Manual, but I'm probably saying it wrong and I'm going <laughs> to regret, regret that I'm saying the title wrong. Uh, my list, is, my timeline is very short after this and I have many more questions besides this timeline, but I just kind of stuck to some high points because it's a long, it's a broad history. Um, so then we get to the 80s and 90s um, and AIDS. Mm -hmm. And uh, the research I have says that a lot of lesbian leather women were involved in helping to care for gay leather men who had been stricken with AIDS, which I know is kind of across the board that there was a moment during AIDS when lesbians and, and fags or gay men really were together in community uh, in, around survival and around AIDS activism in a way that they hadn't necessarily been before. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering about your, you were alive then. You're, yep. <laughs> you were, I was in, in the trenches. I knew the very first HIV positive case in Los Angeles. Um, I was part of the very first safer sex organization in Los Angeles. Um, so I was part of that very early on. And absolutely, lesbians, not just leather lesbians, but lesbians across the board jumped in and they were, I don't believe in angels, but they were angels. They, um, they helped us raise money. They helped take care of people. They drove people to doctor's appointments. They visited them in the hospital. They cared for them while they were dying. Um, and certainly leather lesbians in, in part because I think because we shared a sexuality, sometimes kinky folk actually think of their kink as more of their orientation. Some don't, but some do as an even stronger um, glue 
that holds people together. And so sometimes kinky gay men and kinky lesbians have this kind of bond, and kinky people generally have this kind of bond because they share a style of sexuality mm. that maybe mainstream gay men and lesbians don't. And mm. so I think maybe leather lesbians jumped in even more because they already had very tight bonds. I mean, we just talked about them, you know, putting hands up guys' butts, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that didn't happen that often, but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I, without a doubt, the women in the leather scene um, were there, no question, helping out right from the very beginning. And with like the explosion of AIDS um, and the AIDS epidemic, was I can imagine how leather was changed by it as I, I've heard accounts of how all of gay culture was changed by it, especially nightlife or underground. Was there anything in particular that changed to the leather scene, do you think, that was like specific towards the leather scene? Uh, we had less sex, sex, and I think a lot of people turned to us because we were able to be erotic and sexual without insertion. A lot of kinky people know how to do all sorts of things that don't require you know, inserting A into slot B. And um, so I think it was interesting that in the leather scene, a lot of mainstream gay culture came to us and said, well, how do you deliver this message that you can do all these other things and not necessarily do insertive sex? Because at the time we didn't know a lot, but we knew insertive sex was not a good thing. And then we finally realized, well, that indeed was the transmission point. Mm. And... So I think a lot of leather people felt like they were being acknowledged in a way for our skill set or our culture that we might not have before. And that was kind of cool. So I think that we felt actually more part of mainstream gay culture, um, gay lesbian culture, LGBT, what we would say Q now, um, than we might have previously. And I think AIDS brought us together in a very sad way but it, but it indeed did. Wow, that's what I was wondering about. I thought that might be the case. Um, oh, what a time. <laughs> it, like... it, was, it was a very strange time. I mean, my first partner died of AIDS. Um, I, I, I did a lot of teaching around how to adapt your sexuality to other ways of playing, to avoid transmission, et cetera. I, it, was, it was an interesting time. Moving forward through time, well, actually, a little backwards through time, I had left mm -hmm. out that in 1979, the San Francisco Lesbian Motorcycle Club Dykes on Bikes led then what was what was called then the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day parade for the first time in yep. 1979. Um, and I think that's pretty cool. And, <laughs> like they're, sti and they're still around. I love it. Uh, yeah, still here. Yep. Still here. Um, and then the end of my timeline really is the LGBT and leather cultural district was created in South of Market in San Francisco in 2018, mm -hmm. which includes the San Francisco South of Market Leather History Alley, which is a long ring gold alley. So that's my timeline. It's pretty broad, yeah. as I told you. No, but, it's, um, um, I think there's a couple of things that um, sort of generally, uh, probably around the um, late 80s, early 90s was really yeah. when the genders and orientations began to mix in a significant way. Mm. There was, a, there was a, an event in um, the Northwest called Living in, Le Living in Leather, which was really the first attempt to bring men and women of all orientations um, together who were kinky or leather, leather identified, kink identified, uh, to a conference where there was education and play and social time and things like that. And I think that was a turning point for the leather scene where it, it was integrated in a way that heretofore had not not happened. Right. And so I think that was a kind of pivotal. Um, fast forward to the Leather Cultural District, and I think it it's pretty amazing that a city acknowledges that an entire culture is worthy of preservation that mm. would have been deemed, you know, sinners and 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 you know awful human beings for doing these 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 kinky things. So to have a city say no you have a culture and it's worth preserving is is it's amazing it's really special <laughs> yeah and i'm not sure it would happen anywhere but san francisco right yeah san francisco has so much of that outsider outsider ethos still happening that started from its founding back in the day it does and um, i actually feel like we're going to see a resurgence of that 
think so. I agree. <laughs> One would hope. Speaking of San Francisco, what did you hear about San Francisco before you lived here? What did you hear about the leather scene here? Uh, so I moved to Los, An- Los Angeles in 80, and that was when I really, um, I, might, I visited a little bit before that. But when I moved to Los Angeles, I was making frequent trips to San Francisco. San Francisco was my playground. Mm. I would come up here often solo and go to the leather bars and the baths and 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 the clubs and and it was nirvana for a leather person. It was um, so even in like eighty eighty one when I began to come here on a regular basis, I would hear stories of what it was like five years ago, ten years ago, and the the leather culture of I'll say the seventies was very similar to the culture in the beginning of the 80s. And if if AIDS hadn't happened, I think it would have probably continued much the way it was. But of course, AIDS changed everything. But um, I loved the fact that I could immerse myself in a 100% leather culture, highly sexual, highly intimate, and not have to turn around and look over my shoulder and say, can I do this? In San Francisco, I could do it. I could walk down south of Market Street and feel cool, you know? And I I, I couldn't do that in a lot of other places, even other places that are really big leather cultures. Really? Yeah. What do you think it was about San Francisco? I think San Francisco and New York to some extent, um, Chicago in a a little way, and LA to some extent, although that was a car culture, so you didn't walk anywhere. But... um, I don't know what the ingredients of the stew that makes up San Francisco was at the time, but that stew was really delicious and it was really sexual and it was really open and it was very experimental and it was very collaborative and it was edgy and we accepted things that other parts of the country just didn't. Mm. And um, so even though there was leather culture everywhere, and although I, I lived in New York in, in the late 70s, and I have to say the leather culture there was, was very immersed too, but, but San Francisco's was unique mm. complete, for me. Having experienced all of them, San Francisco was a very unique culture, and still is, I think. What would a night out in San Francisco be around that time <laughs> when you were living in L.A.? In L.A.? Well, when um, you were living in L.A. and visiting, what was Oh, and San- visiting San Francisco? Um, I would stay someplace. I think I stayed at Bex a lot. <laughs> I know. I know you're shocked, right? Um, uh, but I would, I, and often I would stay at, uh, like a motel south of Market because I would be right there amidst it all. I would get geared up. I would go to the bars. The bars were packed full of leather guys, um, or or in some variation of butch aesthetic for the most part. Mm. Um, and back then, you often had sex in the bars. That was not like in a back room or just for anywhere. Any back room anywhere. <laughs> so I'd go to the bars. That would be the first thing, and I'd probably bar hop. Each mm-hmm. bar had its own feel. And then, like what? Like what were some of the different bars? Um. Oh. Uh, oh, now you're. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to name it. Oh, that's terrible. I'm having a 66-year-old brain moment. Um, it's where the powerhouse is now. Um, oh, right. Was that Phoebe's? No, no, it wasn't Phoebe's, but I can't think of the name. I'm sorry. It's um, okay. But I would often go there. That was one of my favorite places. Uh, very sleazy. Always in the back area. There was sex going on. Um, and... Uh, and there's another bar that's also escaping me. And I remember, and I remember the going in there because I wasn't much of a substance user at all. I didn't drink and I didn't do much. I was pretty much a teetotaler back then. Mm. And I went into this one bar and, and there were just drugs everywhere. Just mm. everywhere. People were high as a guy. Having a good time. Really nothing bad with it. They yeah. were all having a good time. They were getting along. There was no violence. There was no, no problem. But they were high as a kite. And... I really, I would go into that bar and kind of experience that. Mm. And I'd go somewhere else and experience sex. And then I would usually go to a bathhouse. I was very much a bathhouse kind of guy. Mm. There was one in particular called The Slot. Mm -hmm. And I remember before I even moved here, somebody said, oh, what, be careful when you go into The Slot. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you will, the, the Crisco from the front door all the way to the front desk, you will slide. 
And I thought they were kidding, and they weren't. It was there was that much Crisco in the place that that the the stores the, the floors are actually a little slick, and um, and and so yeah, I the bathhouses were the places I would mostly go to, and the slot was one of my favorites. Every room was different. It was very kinky, a lot of fisting. Um, That's the Crisco. Hence the Crisco. Um, but there were also, um, you know, eye bolts all over the room. So there was places to tie and things like that. And every room was a little different. Unlike most bathhouses that have cookie cutter rooms, yeah. the slot, every room was different. I think maybe it was a morph motel or something once upon a mm-hmm. time. I'm not really sure. But um, I remember all the rooms had a little different configuration and feel to them. So you would say, I want that room because that has a sling and it has 10 eye bolts that I know how to use. And so I, that became one of my go-to places and I would often take guys from the bar to the slot and play there. I almost never played at home. Really? Yeah. Almost never played at home. I, there was no need because there were sex clubs and bathhouses and venues. You could have sex anywhere. So you, I just, and they had equipment and they had places and it had to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Crisco's hard to get out of stuff, you know, and so, um, and back then, that was certainly the fisting substance, you know, lube of choice was Crisco, not so much today. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the feeling of community when I would go into both the bars and the sex clubs. It, it really had a feeling of, this is our group. This is our community. This is our, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know how to explain the feeling of camaraderie you had with people who shared both the aesthetic you enjoyed embodying and the kind of sex you enjoyed having and the culture that built up around that. Because, you know, we would go to dinner parties and naked slaves would serve dinner and, you know, just things like that. I mean, it was it was um, people that would get off on, you know, doing that for the for the people who were who were in attendance. And 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 that kind of culture was shared in a way that wasn't shared anywhere else, you know, and, and, and remember I use that slave word in, in the context of sex and not, a, not a cultural thing at all, because it's, it's not at all the same. These days I have to be very careful with that because, um, um, rightly so we are yeah. in a time when we should be hypersensitive about that. And so I, I, I never want to disrespect anyone with my verbiage. Appreciate that. Um, how has leather changed over leather, like international Mr. Leather? Am I saying that right, right? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you said it right. <laughs> you actually, most, most people say that wrong. They usually say Mr. International Leather, but it's International right. Mr. Leather, IML. IML, right, IML. Like, I know that that's a big center point for, like, community and, like, leather throughout the year. Um, and I'm just curious, like, I know that with that, like, the inclusion of trans men in that and the inclusion mm-hmm. of non-binary people in that. And I'm just curious how... How has leather changed as awareness, particularly around gender in the queer scene, has changed? Uh, like a more fluid identity with gender or the more visibility of trans people in, in, in our scene and in the world? I think that the scene has changed for the better because it's more inclusive of all those variations of how to be kinky in your own way. Um, I remember um, I, the, you know, the first trans man who won IML um, was a friend, big deal. Um, and, and certainly Jack, Jack, you know, the, the, the current is, is a friend and big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, um, I think, I can't remember if he, what place, I think he took fifth place, but another, another friend of mine came out in heels and very femmed out and said, this is how I present. This is my kink. And he's a kinky motherfucker. I mean, he is twisted and that's the way he presents and that's what turns him on and everyone kind of accept well not everyone accepted it it was bumpy i i'd be lying if i said everybody accepted that that would be pollyanna pollyanna to say that um they didn't some people were like oh that's just that doesn't belong on our stage and stuff like that but for the most part it was accepted and applauded Mm -hmm. and i was in the audience when he gave his speech in heels femmed out i think he had a fur around his shoulders or something i can't remember but he was very femmed out and he gave a speech and the whole place blew up in applause. So the vast majority of folks there, mostly leather men, were very, very accepting. And there were always, every culture has resistance. 
and there were always those people who just don't like change. And, and I think some people make this assumption that just because they have to, they should accept people for who they are and how they are and how they present and how they, how they be, that somehow it means they should be different. And that's not true. You should be yourself. And if you're a hardcore butch leatherman who always wants to be this, then be that. But don't let someone else, you know, don't yuck their yum. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean. No, I, it's true. I, I, I just try never to be that old leather guy that points and goes, that's not how you're leather. I, it's always changed. Do you know that in the very early leather bars, most of, the, well, many of the guys were wearing white jeans. That was the uniform of choice. Really? Well, remember, a lot of them came from the Navy. Right. And so white, white pants was a norm for them. The other thing is white jeans show off your bulge. And yeah, quite prominently. And that yeah. was intentional. So a lot of guys would be in black boots, black leather jackets, and white jeans. So, and I say that to some stick-in-the-mud leather guys. I say, so if you want to be a real leather man, you're going to wear white jeans, right? Well, no, I would never do that. Well, that's what they did and back in the error that you revere so much. <laughs> so cultures change. We change. We morph. We grow. We learn. Hopefully. <laughs> I've always been curious about these terms. I've heard them, the old guard and the new guard. What's yeah. that? Okay. This is kind of a big bone of contention for me. So I will. Oh, okay. I, no, 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 no. In, in, in a very positive way. I've written a lot about this. The old guard was first used in a magazine as, as a phrase, and then it got proliferated by a, a few other writers. And it was never meant to identify an entire body of mostly gay men, leather men, who lived by some codified way of leather, who had all these rituals and protocols and norms that they followed all the time. And there, there was a, a way of entering this world and behaving in this world. And, and that was only... A little bit true, barely true. It was small little pods of guys might kind of look like that, but it got mythologized like so much happens in all cultures. And it became this thing that we reference the old guard as that's true leather or that's the way it was done. And no, it was a bunch of guys for the most part who were just horny and liked the way it looked and felt and it made them feel good to hang out together. It wasn't all that complicated. So, so I take a little exception with the old guard sometimes because it's used as this referential point. Like there was this whole body of guys that, that were like that. And that's just not true. And people that were, that came from that era will tell you that was not true. Got it. Uh, yeah. So, but so there's a few, and then we also use the term new guard. Mm -hmm. which is supposedly post old guard. I'm not quite sure what that right. is. Right. Is it always, is it always <laughs> the newest person in the room? Yeah, I don't quite know. Exactly. The newest back in the day. Yeah. Um, and a friend of mine, um, she always calls herself middle guard, which I think is funny. <laughs> That's kind of brought me to the end of my questions that I, I was really curious about with you. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is super important that we should know about? Just that leather or kink. And I, and I, and I use that word consciously because I think that younger Kinksters, which is a phrase that um, Dave Rhodes of the Leather Journal actually claims I'm the first person to coin it, but uh, I'll say that he's, he's, I'll say he's right. He says he's right, but I'll, I'll let him speak for that. But younger folks don't identify so much with leather because they see it as this particular way of being. It, can, it, it isn't supposed to just be this way of being, but they see it that way. So they often say kink. If you're in Europe, they'll say fetish more than anything. That's, that's their term of, 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 of choice for the, the kink scene. But I think that it's exploding from this kind of Venn diagram that everything overlapped and everything is kind of expanding out. Mm. And there's overlaps. Those, the, the fisting community overlaps with the BDSM community, overlaps with the het BDSM community, overlaps with the rope shibari group, overlaps with the rubber latex guys, overlaps with um, the the pan kink community over I mean I could go on and it's it's this inter this intersection of all these different groups that have this commonality of kink but I actually think they're they're each kind of separate communities 
that occasionally get together and act as one community, but they're really quite separate communities. Mm. So I don't pretend to ever speak for the heterosexual BDSM community because right. they're their own community. I don't. Um, if there's a, a women's latex group, I don't pretend to speak for them because they're their own thing and they 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 experience the sexuality in their own ways. So I think leather has morphed into this cadre of sub-communities within the larger community and each operates on its own and occasionally gets together. It's something like Folsom Street Fair. That's an event where they would all get together. And, and that's probably one of the best examples in the United States of every faction of kingster, of every gender expression, every, every identity, every orientation, every kink feels like I can go there and I can be part of this because we're all doing this together. That doesn't happen very often. Pretty special. You've mentioned a few times being six, in your 60s. 66? 66. So what's, what, about, what about age and sexuality and age and leather? Like, um, I feel like there's, I'm, as a queer man of my age, I'm 40. Uh, a lot of people are just older than me. There's like not, a lot of people passed away from AIDS and all of this. And there's not a lot of models necessarily for aging as a queer uh, male-identified person. And I'm curious, I'm curious about what that's like for you. Uh, I think because so many of my peers died that there we're often looked to as elders. Uh, I'm, I'm not always comfortable with that word. Um, not because of the age thing, but just because it, it's, it almost places people on an altar that I don't think they should be placed on. Um, I just happen to be a 66-year-old guy that's been in the scene a long time. That's it. And um, I, I, I think that there's a lot of young people that kind of look to older guys like me or older people like me and want to know, well, what was it like and what did you do? And, and they, they, they see us as teachers and, and that's great. I have no problem with that. The one thing I really hope never happens that I think a lot of people my age, especially a lot of leather guys my age, wish would happen is that the scene stayed the same. I think a lot of guys my age want the leather bars to be full of leather men and just leather men. And they want everybody to dress a certain way and act a certain way because it's hot. It is. It, it's jerk off material. It's hot. It's the reason leather bars came to be is because they were erotic environments. And the moment they weren't erotic, they weren't erotic. And so if it wasn't an environment, so I'm, I'm hoping that more guys my age embrace the younger kinksters and say, okay, it's not the way I did it. I don't, I don't dress that way. I don't do my sex that way. I don't identify that way. I'm not fluid that way. Fluidity was something that just wasn't talked about once upon a time. And now it's very much talked about. So I'm hoping guys my age accept younger kinksters more and, and realize that it doesn't negate their experience at all. And it doesn't negate their identity at all. It's just everything gets co-opted and everything gets morphed and everything gets changed because that's the way life goes. And, that, and that's the same for leather. I mean, it's, it's interesting because just hearing you say it, like uh, that's hot. Like when you said that's hot about uh, butch, leatherman, dressed to the nines, et cetera. And it's like, yes, that's hot. But that was like maybe the, the dominant uh, kink of the moment when it was starting and now it's less of the kink of the moment, but it still exists around us. I mean, we see masculine fetishization everywhere. And, um, Absolutely. So but within a scene, the desire for a scene to stay how it was when it was the most important to you or you felt most related to it sounds important because community feels good. Um, and it feels to belong to a group that has similar interests. And for those interests to change, I'm sure it can be disorienting. People need to understand that they get to go home or go to the club or go to the hotel room or wherever they play and they get to play and be exactly who they want to be and no one gets to tell them who that who that is and that when you go into a more public space and you're more you're mixed with more different kinds of people that doesn't negate anything about who you are what you like and hopefully and um you should just sort of enjoy people for who they are and and not feel like that encroaches on you in any way Oh, speaking of changing, <laughs> how has porn, how has the proliferation and accessibility of porn changed leather? Has it changed leather and kink? 
has it been I, like I've, I've you know I've had sex with people who I feel like are imitating porn as opposed uh-huh. to the porn imitating the sex that we're having um it's you know designed for viewership as opposed to participation it's yeah. a, it's designed for the eye as opposed to like the sensorial body and I'm just curious how it's changed le- leather and kink or if you think it has yeah I I always tell this story about many many years ago I I used to do bondage on on porn sets and so I would walk onto the set, tie the guys up, hand the top, the two ends of the rope, and say, make it look like you just did this. Because, I mean, that was just, you're right. Porn is theater. It is. And a lot of what plays well for theater doesn't necessarily play well in intimate life. A lot of BDSM, if you actually filmed it, would be boring as hell. Because you can't see the eye connection and the intensity and what's going on in their heads with roles and dynamics and things that they're playing with. That that doesn't film. That doesn't. That's not something that demonstrates well externally. So having to play to the camera has often meant that the BDSM is not so great. Some of it's very good. Some kinky porn is quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think the the emergence of Just for Fans and Is My Guy and 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 services like that allows the people to present exactly who they are and people consume that as porn as opposed to a big porn company having to find the models and make sure they all know how to do this and if they don't, they fake it. And So I think porn has proliferated kink, but very few people, I think, look to it as tutorials, hopefully. They are not tutorials. They are definitely not tutorials. Warning. Warning. Porn. They are not tutorials. Do, Porn not does try, not... do not try this at home without with without oversight. Yeah. I mean, porn doesn't even porn doesn't teach people quote unquote how to have sex no. either. Like no. it's 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 you're like it's theater, it's cinematography, it's fantasy. Right. Yep. Um and it's not about necessarily being two people together or yeah. three or four or five or ten. Well, uh, thank you so much. I'm surprised it's taken us this long to connect as humans, and I'm so happy that we have. And well, I feel honored. like we could have 10,000 more hours of conversations. It's yeah. really wonderful. You have a um, tremendous reputation in the community. I just uh, want to say that. And, thank you. Um, and so it's an honor to be interviewed by you. Thank you. That's really delightful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I want to know before we go, you have plugs. I want you to plug everything that you have going on. You are one of... <laughs> Reading your res, reading your bio and your resume, I'm just like, are you a Virgo, Virgo rising? Like, what's going on for you astrologically? How are? <laughs> I'm, a, you I, I'm a Leo Taurus rising, but oh, yeah. okay, <laughs> that makes sense. I yeah, see that. The, I think the Leo part people look at me and go, ah. I mean, I actually not a big astrologer. I used to be an astrologer. Well, old story. I gave it up. I'll tell you that story another time. What? But, yeah, yeah. It's I have a very weird professional path of life that yeah, I'll tell you about dancer sometimes. astrologer I yeah. like this is a whole other a whole other episode but what do you have to plug for us today um uh one of the things I want to plug is is not necessarily specifically leather although a lot of us that formed it were our, our kinksters and mm-hmm. that is the um, San Francisco Bay Area Queer Nightlife Fund I mm-hmm. um, I'm very proud of what we've done what we've done to um try and support queer nightlife workers mm-hmm. and so if you go to sfqueernightlifefund.org um, um, you'll see a lot of the work we're doing, um, um, events. We're starting to do these regular talks and we are soon going to have a professional development track. Um, stay tuned to help people in queer nightlife find, um, employment to keep them solvent while we are trying to revive queer nightlife in San Francisco. Amazing. Um, my book, Learning the Ropes is available on Amazon. <laughs> it's, uh, Learning the Ropes, a basic guide to um, safe and fun BDSM lovemaking. Mm. Notice I have the lovemaking in there. I love that. I love yeah. lovemaking. Yeah, me too. I, when I tie someone up, I'm making love to them. That's that's how I look at it. Um, so it's available on Kindle. I have not put it out lately in its current iteration in paper, but that's coming. Um, and then you can visit my blog at Bannon.com. Uh, you can see my non-kinky stuff at racebannon.com. I'm on Medium. Um, I wrote for the Barry Reporter for seven years. You can look at all my articles on there. I write for um, Recon.com, mm-hmm. gay men's hookup site, but they now have their own blog, and I write for Drummer and other places. So, Excellent. You can, you, you'll, you'll see me around. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I, it's been so delightful and I've learned a lot and we're going to do a leather episode every year. So we'll have to talk to you again, but Love it sounds it. like we could talk to you about astrology too. So when that, oh, we get well, our gay I astrology another, episode. Yeah, I'll, tell you about that <laughs> I'll tell you about that sometime. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Race. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. That was me, Vivian Fevermore, slash Micah Sigourney, and Race Bannon talking about the history of leather. Thank you for listening to Stud Stories. If you like this episode and want to make sure you hear all the future Stud Stories we have for you, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really love us and you want to support us, you could join our Patreon. We are at patreon.com backslash the stud, all one word. Our Patreon subscribers get early access to this podcast. You get it a week earlier than everyone else. You get behind the scenes footage from our Drag Alive, weekly Drag Alive show, as well as expanded podcast and Drag Alive content. If you become a subscriber at certain levels, you will get stud updates from Vivian Forevermore herself, that's me, in a video, and also discounts on our merch. So check us out at patreon.com. It's really helpful to us, and it helps us to, you know, pay our bills, like the two shipping containers all of the stud lives in currently. Since we can't be with you in person right now, please join us every Saturday at 7.30 p.m. for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, which is at twitch.tv backslash drag alive. It's a rotating hosts of wonderful San Francisco talent, and the shows include performers from all over the world, frankly. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Ben McGrath is our production manager. Music by Paige Turner. And I am your host. I hope to see you on the internet. Or maybe on the streets, but only with masks. Don't forget to vote. Bye.